0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, good friends. Good to see you. And welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Well, you hear this complaint from almost all sides today times are tough. Yeah. You hear it all from all sides but one, from lawyers. Because with all the big lawsuits out there against Donald Trump, Rudy Giuliani, Hunter Biden, and others, and all the big cases winding their way through the appeals courts and all the way up to the Supreme Court, this is a great job market for lawyers. And how all of today's lawsuits and cases are settled will definitely have a huge impact on next year's presidential campaign. So, We thought it might be important to sit back here toward the end of the year and take a good hard look at our legal system and how it's performing at every level. And we could have no better guide through the legal thicket than Dahlia Lithwick, senior legal correspondent for Slate Magazine and contributing editor for Newsweek, who's been covering the Supreme Court for decades. Dahlia joins us today from Tel Aviv, where she's been helping her parents deal with the ongoing impacts of the Israeli-Hamas war. Dahlia Lithwick, it's so good to reconnect with you after too long a time.
1: Bill, I missed you. It's good to to be back.
0: Well, welcome to the uh, Bill Press Pod. So I have to ask you over, so let's say you were playing doctor, uh, uh, and you took your stethoscope to the health of the American judicial system today. Overall, how healthy are we what kind of shape are we in <laughs> hmm.
1: as as any good doctor would say there's good news and there's bad news right <laughs> i think the good news is we can say with some confidence that it was thanks to the american judicial system that the 2020 election didn't end in you know a democracy ending catastrophe right we had courts all over the country including trump yep. judges batting away the wildest wildest theories that that some of us thought they might just countenance right mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i think credit where it's due good point the yep. system held now the bad news the system has morphed and morphed again since then we have seen in addition to and i know we're going to focus on the supreme court but we've seen a, a pretty aberrational 6-3 conservative supermajority that has sort of laid waste to decades of precedent, and that's bad. And I would say more urgently, we've seen lower courts, and I know we'll talk about this too, emboldened by their Mm. sense that the Supreme Court is theirs for the taking. And so Mm -hmm. we have seen lower courts pushing from below ideas that even the current Supreme Court says are too crazy. But I think that that sense that there's no breaking mechanism on the appeals courts, judges, particularly the Trump judges, that they are bringing cases to the court that would be like coffee out your nose, ridiculous at any other moment in history. I think is really worrisome and maybe the final piece of really bad news and this in case that wasn't bad enough is that public confidence in the courts is in the tank right. and we've seen that you know, I know we're going to talk about the ethics stuff too, but that has been exacerbated both by that 6 3 juggernaut that has laid waste to reproductive rights and gun protections and environmental protections, but it's also because of the ethics scandals. And so I think what we have is this kind of trifecta of of the most conservative Supreme court we've had since the Lochner era. We have nullification in States that just don't feel like following Supreme court directives in some of the voting rights cases. And we have nullification from courts below that say, yeah, no, we don't, we're not going to do that. We're going to just push further. And then that third piece that I think is almost existential is that we have an American public that has lost confidence in the judiciary. Mm -hmm. And if you think, think about where the 2024 election is going to get decided, possibly the courts. That third thing could be a disaster.
0: So in his four years, Donald Trump appointed over 200 judges, confirmed, right, Uh, including 54 federal appeals court judges. Is this what you're describing, sort of the impact of that
1: it's, it's largely that, and don't forget three of those judges he installed yes. were at the U.S. Supreme Court, <laughs> yeah. right? There are presidents, yeah. Jimmy yeah. Carter, who get to appoint zero mm-hmm. justices. Trump, in, in part because Merrick Garland was blocked, they stole an Obama pick, in part because by all rights and by the Merrick Garland rule, uh, they should not have installed Amy Coney Barrett to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg when voting had already begun. In the presidential election. So in some sense, they stole two seats, but nevertheless seated three justices. And I think as we're about to talk about Trump justices are not George Bush judges. They are not Ronald Reagan judges. They are uh, an entity unto themselves. And so I think you're exactly right to say it's not just the number of judges that, that Donald Trump installed. It's that for the first time in history, and this is really important, Donald Trump did one thing correctly, which was he contracted this out to the experts. His mm-hmm. judicial picks were picked by the Federalist Society, by Leonard Leo, remember that name? Oh, By yeah. the Heritage Foundation. This is one of the few things he did superbly because he didn't do it himself and he didn't leave it to hat.
0: <laughs> right. And in, in the end, toward the end of his presidency, when he was trying to hold on to the White House, didn't he sort of turn against Leonard Leo because uh, he didn't think he was conservative enough and would, would go far enough in trying to overturn the election?
1: There's a piece, uh, a recent piece in the New York Times that suggests as much. I I, I would say approach it with a tiny bit of caution because that piece reads a little bit like Leonard Leo (laughs) leaked it, (laughs) trying to distance himself from Donald Trump. But I think it is correct to say descriptively, that a lot of the Federalist Society judges didn't stand up for him around the election. He didn't feel like Leo decided that was the hill he wanted to die on. And if you look at the kinds of people that Donald Trump is sort of staffing up as his legal brain trust bill, these guys make the Federalist Society look like, you know, fuzzy bunnies in the zoo. Like these guys are absolutely to the far, far lawless kind of, I would say, reckless nihilist right of legal thinking. And so they make Leonard Leo, they make Neil Gorsuch, they make Amy Coney Barrett look like, you know, pot-smoking hippies.
0: And they're the ones that Trump would surround himself with, right, were he ever to get back in the Oval Office.
1: I I think the most dispiriting news that hasn't gotten enough attention, and I I, I hate when people sort of boohoo about what's not getting attention because it feels like nothing gets enough attention, (laughs) but I think the reporting that came out in the last two weeks about Donald Trump's plans to, you know, set up mass, you know, camps for migrants, concentration camps for migrants, to take away student visas and other lawful visas from people that he was suspicious of, to weaponize the entire Justice Department to go after, in his word, the Bidens, claims that he was going to pretty much take out officials, you know, career officials uh, and appointees at at, uh, agencies and replace them with his stalwarts. The news of what he purports to do with the machinery of the Justice Department Mm -hmm. is really bone chilling. I mean, it really has all the hallmarks of authoritarianism. And I think the fact that the people he has surrounded himself with are the kinds of nutters who we would have just, you know, been gobsmacked in the last administration if they got even a job. And these are the kinds of people that now he wants to head up departments.
0: So do you think there's really a threat of uh, an authoritarian government?
1: I I mean, what was it that Donald Trump said? You know, the first week of December, that he'd only be a dictator for a day.
0: Oh yeah, that makes it that makes me feel a lot better.
1: Yeah, I <laughs> only mean, for I,
0: day one. Only for day one, right?
1: <laughs> I, I take very seriously when a magazine like The Atlantic dedicates an entire mm. issue, you know, to the to the very strong possibility of you know you can fight about the nomenclature whether you want to call it fascism or authoritarianism, but I don't think there's any doubt in my mind, given what we saw. Happen in the last administration, and also the ways in which the heroes of that administration become what Bill Barr, who wouldn't throw the election, you know, would do everything yeah. but throw the election to Donald Trump. And so, I think the fact that those people are now the kinds of people that Donald Trump says, you know, are squishes in the language of his new legal advisors, I think we should very, very seriously. Consider that the kinds of plans that we are seeing to, you know, go after journalists explicitly to, um, as I said, take away uh, immigration status for people who have ideas that are anathema to the administration. I think the idea that the Justice Department is gonna dedicate itself first and foremost to going after Trump's political enemies. I mean, each one of those things is a marker of authoritarianism, of sort of what Ruth mm-hmm. ben Giot calls like strongman politics. And I think that anybody who's not taking the threat of that very seriously is, I don't know, I, 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 maybe right. asleep at the switch.
0: Right, yeah, living under a rock somewhere. In fact, uh, I'm embarrassed to say, I can't remember now who wrote it, but there was a recent piece in the New York Times also saying that now's the time to get rid of the Insurrection Act before Donald Trump invokes it, were he to get back in, right?
1: Uh, That's exactly right. And and don't forget, that was one of the things that he regrets. He explicitly now says he regrets not— You know that 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 he wasn't able to effectuate that, and that and he would michael do that. Flynn
0: Michael Flynn was urging him to do it, right? to send out the military to grab the voting machines under the insurrection act
1: a hundred percent and 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 maybe, like this entire conversation we've had till now goes sort of under the rubric of stuff that proves the extent to which the architecture of democracy, which we like to think of as immutable, right? It's fixed. It is forever. All of this stuff is just so fragile. And I think that sometimes we like to tell the story of 2020, which is Biden won, Trump lost, no yeah. authoritarianism. We're good. Shake it off. You know, Let's go to Target and go shopping. And I think that the real truth is the system held but kind of by a thread and that the kinds of people who have not been held accountable, who are, you know, the Mike Flynn's, the John Eastman's, the Steve Bannon's who are ramping up to do round two, learn very carefully what the fragile pieces are and where the sort of soft underbelly is and how to bolster that. So next time they can do it. Right.
0: You know, like you, I, uh- <laughs> Uh, I don't know so much that people complain all the time about why aren't you writing more about this or writing more about that, whatever. But I think it is true that the media seems to be missing the impact of what's really going on. I mean, Yes, the Atlantic, its entire issue, right? Robert Kagan in The Washington Post, Charlie Sykes on Bulwark has been talking about this. You know, in the mainstream media, all we hear about is uh, God. George Santos is making videos, right, and making all kinds of money. And Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis are sparring off in a meaningless debate. I mean, don't don't you think they're missing the real impact of of what is underway these days and what could happen?
1: I, I, I'm a, a steadfast worshipper, Bill, at the Church of Margaret Sullivan. Jay Rosen. You know, there's a whole host of media critics, you know, Brian Statler, who have Mm -hmm. been saying from the jump, do not make the mistakes we made in 2016. Do not make the mistakes we made in 2020. And folks should read Margaret Sullivan. I think she, you know, could teach a master class. And and, and maybe the phrase that I've been writing about in this context, like you, you know, I get a lot of readers who are like, why aren't you raising the alarm? And I'm like, dude, I raise the alarm 42 times a day. Like, I don't <laughs> know what I could do different. But I think that the phrase that I've really honed in on, and, and probably you have too, is Jay Rosen, you know, the amazing uh, media critic. Uh, and he says, pay attention to the stakes not the polls, not the horse race. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when we get ourselves, as you said, in a lather, either about, you know, oh, Nikki Haley says what? You know, at the at the Republican primary debates or, you know, yeah. as you said, yeah. George Santos, we get really over in the sort of circus part of this. And I think what Jay Rosen is saying over and over and over again is the stakes here are existential. They are existential. That's what the Robert Kagan piece was. And so when we go small bore on, you know, on the one hand, Donald Trump says you know, he's going to, <laughs> you know, fire up the Insurrection Act and, and uh, you know, take away the right to habeas corpus. But on the other hand, sometimes Joe Biden forgets words and those things are equivalent. That's us committing journalistic malpractice because the stakes of Donald Trump, you know, initiating a period of not only autocracy, but there will never be another free and fair election if he wins in 24. He's made that clear. And the stakes of Joe Biden getting a word wrong are just not equivalent.
0: Yeah, yeah, Liz Cheney says were he reelected he would never leave the White House, right? right. I mean, yeah.
1: Right. And, and then certainly- Ivanka Ivanka would be the next president and Barron would be the one after that. Like this is how yeah. you know, yeah. I think I think we get very very magical thinking about the idea that there's something uniquely and singularly robust about American democracy. But, you know, democracies rise and fall. And if you look around the world, I mean, this is why groups like Protect Democracy are doing such important work. But, you know, democracies like in Hungary and Poland, around the world, democracies fail. And to think that there is something super, super special about American democracy that makes it inviolate or not susceptible to being subverted, I think, is half the mistake, and it's what leads down the road of George Santos says what.
0: So before, uh, we've referenced the Supreme Court a couple of times, and I'd like to talk to you more about uh, the Supreme Court. But before we get there, just a little sidebar. We talked about Donald Trump's judges. I checked uh, before we talked this morning, as of December 5, uh, President Biden has appointed 161 judges in uh, three years. 122 to district courts, 38 to federal appeals courts, and one to the Supreme Court. What impact does that have, and what can you tell us about the general nature of the judges Biden's appointing compared to those that Trump appointed?
1: I, I would say a couple of important things. The most important thing, and this is a huge win for President Biden, is that he was quick on the draw. President Obama was very, very slow to get his judicial nomination machinery up and running.
0: Mm, And President mm
1: -hmm. Obama tended to seek people on the court who were not a counterbalance to the kinds of very, very extremist sort of federalist society judges Mm -hmm. that George W. Bush had appointed before him. Obama was simply tepid on judges and it showed Biden has been quick to seat judges, and I think the more important thing is he has seated not just judges, really importantly, you know, judges of color, Judges who come out of what used to be disfavored professions, you know, people who work on voting rights, people Mm. who work on reproductive rights, people who come out of the defense bar and not just the prosecutor's office. This stuff is important and it's the kind of stuff that has been neglected even by Democrats. Biden has really, I think, in a deep, deep way, seated a bench that is profoundly, profoundly kind of wedded to the values of the progressive legal movement. And that's a first. That's something that I think Obama just did not focus on. I think what I would say is this. If you look at and I know we're going to talk about um, some of the cases before the court, but if you look at courts like, for instance, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal, which is where a huge disproportionate number of cases are coming out of this term. So the Trump judges who are sending cases up to the Supreme Court are not like any judges we've seen before. They are absolute sort of movement radical zealots and mm-hmm. they tee up cases that are things, as I said earlier, that would be left yeah. out of even a conservative Supreme Court. And so how is Biden to counterbalance people who are so off the charts that often they were not even well rated when they, when their mm-hmm. judgeship mm-hmm. came up? It's very hard to counterbalance, utterly bonkers. I think that what I would say about Biden is he has put up, and you see this in the form of Ketanji Brown-Jackson at the Supreme Court, right. creditable, serious, smart, You know, in every way reflective of what the country looks like, uh, judges who are true progressives. But are they willing to burn it all down? the way trump judges are no of course not because at the end of the day and this is true of merrick garland it's cr- true of justice jackson they are institutionalists who believe in the rule of law
0: right and those judges will have an impact uh, for for some time and hopefully offset uh, the impact of those trump judges as well so let's get to the supreme court after a quick break uh we'll take here on the bill press pod dahlia hold on just a second and then will be we'll be right back today's podcast with Dahlia Lithwick, brought to you by the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Yes, the men and women of the Teamsters Union, 1.2 million strong, America's largest and most diverse of all of our labor unions, under the leadership now of President Sean O'Brien. The Teamsters represent, they're not just truck drivers anymore, they represent every aspect of the American labor movement, from vegetable workers in California to construction workers in Vegas, Brewery workers in in St. Louis, rather, and bakery workers in Maine, as they say. They represent everybody from A to Z, from airline pilots to zookeepers. We salute the good members of the Teamsters Union, thank them for their great work, and thank them especially for the longtime support of the Bill Press Pod.
1: Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
0: And today's podcast with uh, Dahlia Lithwick. We continue now after that quick break. Uh, Dahlia Lithwick joining us, senior legal correspondent for Slate Magazine, also contributing editor to Newsweek and host of the podcast Amicus. And she's author of the uh, great 2022 book called Lady Justice. So, Dahlia, no doubt, right, the three Trump appointees have totally reshaped the United States Supreme Court. Is that a fair assessment?
1: I I think it's completely fair. And I think probably the only data point you need is... This, the median judge on the current Supreme Court, the median central judge is Brett Kavanaugh. And Brett Kavanaugh, if he had been sitting on the Supreme Court 10 years ago, would have been the fringe right. So we have seen mm. not just that, you know, w- what used to be the moderate centrist judge. Uh, The recently departed Sandra Day O'Connor and then Anthony Kennedy, each of whom was what I think of as a kind of country club Republican who tended to swing one way or the other, but was open to affirmative action, was open to gay rights, was open to abortion rights, was very anxious on gun issues. That person is gone. That's centrist justice. Now the centrist justice, Justice Kavanaugh, is a far right movement conservative Who's not willing to go as far as Sam Alito and Clarence Thomas? And that is the center, that is the fulcrum of the court. So, where's that put John Roberts? Well, I mean, two <laughs> terms ago. right. Two terms ago, if we'd been having this conversation, it would have been, but John Roberts flails around kind of on the left of the court, right? That's where he was on Dobbs, the the case that overturned uh, Roe v Wade. Uh, that's where he was on some of the shadow docket, the so-called shadow docket. Uh, opinions on voting rights. He was voting with the liberals. And again, John Roberts is a lifelong movement conservative who comes out of the Reagan Justice Department dead set on eradicating the Voting Rights Act. These are not liberals. They're not moderates. But John Roberts was on the left wing of the court. Now, the thing that has changed, and this is why we're having a different conversation now than we would have had two years ago, is that two years ago, that 2021 term that ended with not just Dobbs, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, not just Bruin, the massive expansion of Second Amendment gun rights, not just the EPA case that eviscerates the clean air act not just you know uh coach kennedy praying on the the 50 yard line of football games and being told that that is protected private mm-hmm. prayer that was a that was quite a term and those were overwhelmingly you know 6-3 juggernaut yeah. con- super conservative supermajority cases things changed things changed the next term and they are different this term. And I think what is different, and this is sort of, I think, the, the, the gist of your question, is that in that term where the conservatives were aligned and Clarence Thomas was writing the majority opinion, Sam Alito was writing the majority opinion, Clarence Thomas was ascendant. Last term, something changed. And we can talk in a minute about why. But last term, even though it was by many measures a disaster, right, it was a disaster for affirmative action for President Biden's loan forgiveness plan. It was a disaster for LGBTQ rights. But. The court was not willing to go over the cliff on the Voting Rights Act in that Allen v. Milligan case. It was not willing to go over the cliff on a really disastrous case about the quote independent state legislature theory. Yes. Why did it not do that? Because Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett tapped the brakes because they joined with the Chief Justice and in some cases the liberals to say no, we're not going to sign off. This is too far. Mm -hmm. on the crazy. And so what I think has changed, and this is really reflected not just in some of those important cases last term where the court didn't break far right, but in case after case that has been argued this term, including some really urgently important ones about the future of, you know, the SEC, about the future of the CFPB. In case after case, you get the sense that Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett are not prepared to burn everything down. That's changed. I think in part it's changed because of the judicial ethics stuff that we're going to talk about. I think it's part, in part changed because Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito have done something irreparable to the court's reputation in the eyes of the country, and they don't want to be tagged with that.
0: Boy. <laughs> I don't know how much confidence I feel that we have to count on uh, Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh to save the day, but uh, uh, that's the way it is, I guess, right? So you 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 just teased us there with a couple of the big cases in this new term. There are some major decisions. What are the one or two or three biggest ones that we ought to be uh, aware of and watching and maybe Worried about.
1: So I want to re up what I said earlier, which is case after case after case, in I think no small way an accident, comes up out of the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, where you have a bunch of judges that Donald Trump installed on the bench James Ho, Andrew Oldham, Kyle Duncan, Corey Wilson. These are the kinds of far right wing kind of radicals who are willing to test an idea. That shouldn't mm. have been allowed into court, and mega so
0: many—they're
1: huh? <laughs> mega judges, and yeah. they're not conservative judges. They're mega judges, and so one of the most important cases that was heard um, last month was a really seminal gun case. It's called Rahimi, and this is a case that essentially gives us Zaki Rahimi who was arguing in a parking lot with his girlfriend. He started, he grabbed her, threw her to the ground, dragged her to the back of the car. When a potential witness saw what he was doing, Zaki Rahimi grabbed his gun and shot at him, threatened to shoot his girlfriend. His girlfriend got a restraining order against him, and under the terms of that order, he couldn't possess a gun. He went on a crime spree. His gun was taken away Mm -hmm. under the terms of that order. And the Fifth Circuit, remember those words, threw out the charge in an opinion written by those MAGA judges. And they said that, you know what? There's no historical analog from the 18th or 19th century of taking away a domestic abuser's gun for beating the heck out of his girlfriend. Because, as you may recall... Um in the 18th and 19th century, not only could you beat the heck out of your girlfriend, but she was your property. So that case is kind of emblematic of the cases that are coming up, Boy, which is
0: unbelievable. You have
1: yeah. a court below that extends the logic of Bruin. That was that gun case from, from two terms ago that said unless you have a, an analog in history at the time of the founding or mm-hmm. after Reconstruction, then the gun law falls. And as a consequence, we've had mega judges all around the country saying things like, oh, well, the law that prohibits sawing off the, the serial number on a gun has to fall because there were no serial numbers on muskets, right? So this is what we've seen yeah. around the country. It's laughable. And this gets pushed up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court heard it in November. right? As I suggested, there's a case challenging whether the entire CFPB is constitutional because of the way it's funded comes up because the Fifth Circuit says the whole CFPB this is Elizabeth Warren's uh, bureau consumer that is
0: protection to, finance, finance bureau right yeah
1: that is supposed to protect us from fraud the whole thing uh, collapses because of the way it's funded we have another case coming up again from the Fifth Circuit suggesting that the idea of uh, Chevron deference, deference to an agency's interpretation of its own of its own rules, maybe just should mean that we we don't listen to how agencies defer to their own judgment of how they should uh, do regulations. So case after case after case after case, maybe the one that will resonate if the guy who beat up his girlfriend doesn't do it, but the one that will resonate most with listeners is that Mifepristone case that comes up again from the Fifth Circuit. And this is uh, a judge who tried to get rid of all of Mifepristone, one of the drugs in the abortion medication protocol across all 50 states um, based on some free-floating idea that it's just unconstitutional. So this is the kind of stuff That the court has to deal with and the only good news bill and it's not great news is that the court doesn't seem to be it's very much the dog that caught the car the court is not super interested in going all out on the wackiest theories that the fifth circuit can think up but that doesn't mean democracy is winning doesn't mean (laughs) that voting rights are winning doesn't mean that women are winning what it means is the court seems to have some kind of shame About rubber stamping the wackiest ideas to come out of the fifth. But
0: why do they take these cases? I mean, I I interviewed Scalia once, and and he was complaining about having to deal with all these issues or something, right? You know, and I challenged him back and said, "Well, why do you take these damn cases anyhow?"
1: I, I mean, a lot of these cases, you know, the court shouldn't take. There's a major, major case that the court heard early heard early in December that has the potential to hollow out not just the future of the wealth tax, if it ever got passed, but almost all of tax law as we see fit, just because two wacky people didn't want to pay their taxes. That's a good example of a case that we can't even fathom they lost in the lower court there's no reason for the supreme court to take it some of these cases particularly the ones coming out of the 5th circuit the court has to take because when the 5th circuit creates new law gets out mm. so far ahead of where the current supreme court is that they're yeah. literally saying oh if you thought that was you know wacky <laughs> look at what we can do then the court is forced to take them and in some sense i think last term and this term you know don't forget last term The lower courts were ready to throw out Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. You know, the lower courts were all in for one nutty idea after the other. I call these the cleanup on aisle four cases where Mm. the court is not even forwarding or advancing a conservative vision of the law. They're simply saying whatever it is you all are doing down there in Texas stop doing it, we'll, we're the deciders. We'll let you know.
0: Wow. You know, now one issue that's not yet before the court, but it seems that is inevitable that it get there. Donald Trump is out in various courtrooms arguing, right, that uh, he can't be charged as he has been because uh, he made all these decisions when he was president. And that's still so that executive privilege still covers him. And also, he's a presidential candidate. How can you dare interfere with my campaign by uh, forcing me to face these charges, it gets back to, you know, whether he is exempt from the courts as long as he's running for president or having wearing the hat of a former president. Judge Chutkin in um, Washington has done a pretty good job, I think, of knocking that argument down. But don't you think this is inevitably going to reach the Supreme Court? And how do you think this court might respond?
1: I mean, it is so fascinating to watch these various Trump cases, and not only those. I I would add to your your list there. You know, these efforts to knock him off the ballot, right?
0: Yeah. Under
1: the Fourteenth Amendment, Amendment. one of those is going to come up to the court too, and all of these are incredibly novel. They're kind of – I mean, Matt, remember how awful Bush v. Gore was because the court got jammed up in the midst of an election? All of those cases are kind of in a a five-car collision. I completely agree with you. I think some pieces of them are going to come to the court sooner rather than later. I I suspect these disqualification cases are going to leapfrog to the court very quickly. Also, as you say, these First Amendment, even the gag orders, uh, which implicate real First Amendment questions, very intractable mm-hmm. First Amendment questions about whether you can gag somebody who's running for president, all of these are going to pile up in the court's doorstep. And I think that in some sense, my, my, and this is rank speculation, but it maps onto what I said about the MAGA justices, I don't think— there are five or six justices on the present court that want to see Donald Trump sworn in as president again. Mm. I strongly <laughs> think that if this is Bush v. Gore kind of 2.0, this isn't the simple act of saying, "Ooh, I pick Bush, which is what yeah, Sandra Day O'Connor yeah. did last time. This would be I think in John Roberts' eyes, probably in Brett Kavanaugh's eyes, probably in Amy Coney Barrett's eyes, the end of the Republic. And I think they know that. And so my speculation is, and I'm not speculating on the merits of any one of these many, many cases that I think you're right are coming to the court, but I do think that the idea that you are going to get the way you did in Bush v. Gore, five justices to simply say, I want the Republican to win. I think the stakes are way, 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 way too high. And if I'm right and quoting Jay Rosen that we focus on the stakes and not the horse race, the stakes for the justices are about much, much more than the horse race. And my guess is that for many, many of these issues, not all of them, we are going to find that that center that I described on the court, this new center of Barrett Kavanaugh and the chief is going to be willing to pump the brakes on giving Donald Trump four more years that will never only be four more years.
0: Yeah, just a final point on that. I, I just had ha, have in front of me Judge Chutkin's ruling, recent ruling, right? Uh in response to Donald Trump's claims that he was somehow exempt from the justice system. Just one one sentence to me that says it all. Quoting Judge Chutkin, defendants' four-year service as commander in chief did not bestow on him the divine right of kings to evade the criminal accountability that governs his fellow citizens. I would hope you're right that <laughs> that Justice Roberts and Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh would agree with that. It's hard to believe that they could not, right, or would not. But that's going to be the challenge. Yeah. So, Dahlia, let's wrap here. You've mentioned her a couple of times. It's fitting the recent passing of the very first woman on the Supreme Court, Sandra Day O'Connor. You covered her. What do you see her legacy and how powerful was she? At one time, she was the most powerful member of the court, correct?
1: Without doubt, for years and years, when I first started covering the court in just around that time, the Bush v. Gore era, Jeff Rosen famously you know said like the 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 supreme court of one in a in a new york times hmm. headline i mean she was the arbiter she was at the center of a court that had four to the left four to the right and she was the arbiter in one issue after another affirmative action abortion rights states rights question the wall between church and state campaign finance reform she was it She decided it. And people, I want to be clear, would go crazy because she was not a swing for the fence's jurist. She was not an ideologue. She was somebody who saw her job as doing as little as possible to make the law as workable as she could for the most people. And pragmatist, she, huh? A pragmatist, and she was derided by the left and the right, notably by Justice Scalia, who had no patience for her. But she was, in the end of the day, somebody who was just kind of weirdly aligned with public opinion. And I'm not suggesting that public opinion drove her decision. She just was one of those people who thought that the court had a kind of limited role, that states had a lot of power, that... Each of the branches of government had to be the determiners of of public policy. And it's so interesting that here we are, you know, not that long after she was in her ascendancy and almost every issue on which she was the arbiter of what the law was, uh, Justice Justice. Alito, who took her seat, has radically uh, moved the goalposts and changed the law to the right on every one of the issues that she was the bellwether. She was the the decider. Uh, again, abortion, affirmative action, campaign finance, all of that legacy is gone. But I think that the thing that I'm really sitting with as I reflect on her death is that she was somebody who not only just believed in a sort of sense of humility, but she cared more than anything else about the primacy and the public regard for the court. Mm. Mm-hmm. And if you read the compromise opinion in Casey, that was the 1992 decision, where improbably enough she aligned with Justices Souter and Kennedy, Anthony Kennedy, David Souter, and she, each of whom was put on the court to overturn Roe. They ended up upholding Roe, but. The opinion is kind of a love song to stare decisis, to precedent, to stability, to public expectation that when the court decides something and people organize their lives around it, that matters. That's what Casey was. Casey was a decision saying, we, we, we're not going to jolt this entire country just because the composition of the court changed. Think about the language in Dobbs, you know, by contrast, that says Roe was wrong, it was always wrong, it was wrong when we're decided, sorry, we're changing things. And and think about the court's public opinion, you know, approval numbers, which are in yeah. the 30s. <laughs> I feel like that's the thing I wanna I wanna remember O'Connor for is somebody who subordinated Her own, except for in Bush v. Gore, where she really did, I think, do that. I think that Bush should win, but I think that, by and large, she she subordinated. She, I'm sorry, she subordinated her own ideological preferences for what was good for the court, and that kind of thinking is all but vanished now at this current Supreme Court.
0: No, she's been described as an institutionalist, so she. I guess we can assume she would be appalled, right? At the present court, the disorder, the, um, as you say, the lack of confidence in the court, the lack of public support for the court, the lack of res- respect for the court.
1: And the ways, I think it's important, Bill, to add, and the ways in which it is entirely self inflicted. In other yeah. words, this is not a Supreme Court that loses public confidence because of Brown v. Board, right? This isn't a court yeah, that yeah. says, in the face of public opprobrium, we're going to do the right thing. This is a court that says, you know what? I think I'm just going to hitch a ride on someone's private jet and then lie about it and not disclose it. You know what? I think I'm just going to yeah. go to a Koch brothers function and let the high the high flyers like pay extra money to like come and and hobnob with me. You know, I think I'll just like yeah. give an interview to David Rifkin in the Wall Street Journal and then <laughs> hear his case being argued at the court. Like, no, this is a self own time and time again. That's the kind of thing I think would just. Appall Justice O'Connor because she really took seriously that the court has neither the power of the purse nor the sword; it has no power other than public integrity. And the idea that the justices, uh, for lack of a better wor- word, like just pissed it away through misconduct and ethical violations and and arrogance, I think would just be anathema to her.
0: But the new ethics code is going to change all of that, of course
1: the new non-binding advisory itself. itself. You you get to decide for yourself. It's kind of like choose your own ending ethics code, where if you just check the boxes, you're like, "Wee! I guess (laughs) I don't have to disclose. Yeah. I mean, it's really, again, you know, not to triangulate off of Justice O'Connor, but I, I would say one other thing about her, you know, she stepped down at the height of her power Because her husband was sick, not because she was infirm in any other way. And then she proceeded to to do a lot of really important work around the country for which I don't think she's credited enough. If you look at the things that she worked on, Bill, it was getting rid of judicial elections in states that elect judges. She thought that all of that money and dark Mm. money and making hollow promises was horrible for the judiciary. She worked on civility and civility education, and she worked on civics and civics education. I think it is not an accident that all three of those things come under the rubric of estimation for the court, understanding of the court's unique role and public regard for the fact that the court is not a political branch. And I think she understood that the only way to ensure that the public respected the court was for the justices to behave in ways that are beyond reproach. That's the stuff she worked on. And so again, we have this ethics code that says, (laughs) you know, if it's a Tuesday and you take a flight, (laughs) but you don't feel like it's a flight or the seat was going to be empty on the flight. So it's not really like, that's not an ethics code. And I just think again, under the category of self-own, it would have been effortless for the right. court to just say, we take this seriously. And the fact that they thought they could fob us off with a kind of a paper mache ethics code yeah. is just so depressing.
0: So I, I have to say, I loved uh, one of your recent columns where you, you were writing West Sandra D. O'Connor, and you pointed out that she had this cushion on a couch in her office with the with the phrase, maybe in error. Never in doubt. I <laughs> I love that. We can all live by that, I guess, uh, uh, Dahlia, Right?
1: <laughs> I I think you know. I've, I it, just this morning was arguing with my dad about what that means, and I take it to mean. Exactly what we just talked about with Casey and Stari Decisis, right? That you may have made a mistake. And by the way, O'Connor only in one case ever said, eh, I would have done things differently. I think she intimated she might have done Bush v. Gore differently Mm -hmm. or that the court shouldn't have taken it. At one time, she did not walk around the world evincing regret. In fact, she was, the few times I met her, utterly terrifying. Look, like she was a tough cookie, you know, very much in keeping with her Arizona cowgirl rap. The first in, time I ever met her, I timidly stuck my hand out to introduce myself, and she kind of looked down her nose at me and said, Oh, I know who you are. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> She was not a good time girl. But I will say that I think never, you know, in doubt, uh, or, or, or perhaps an error, never in doubt, is really a way of saying we do not evince uncertainty because the public relies on us to be better than that. That's the Casey opinion that she helped Mm -hmm. author. And I think that that sense that the court's reputation, its stability, its public regard, really is rooted in the need to be better than just mediocre or certainly better than the snarling Dobbs opinion leaking you know taking pot shots at each other stuff that we see now yeah. I think that that's what that cushion probably meant do better or at least pretend to do better and that's <laughs> the opposite of what this ethics code is
0: no oh, right and I, I tell you I think that would sum up every one of the columns I've ever written maybe an error but never in doubt <laughs> right <laughs>
1: Dahlia Lithwick,
0: so good to talk to you. And thank you so much for all your great work over so many years and our longtime friendship. And for joining us today on the Bill Press Pod. Happy holidays.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me, Bill.
0: And that's it for today's podcast at uh, Looking at the Legal System with Dahlia Lithwick. Thank you so much for joining us. And certainly we invite you to come back on Friday, where we'll have a very special uh, end of the year roundtable, December 22nd with three editors of our regular Roundtable guest who will look back for us at the biggest stories they had to deal with in 2023, and then take a look ahead at what they think are gonna be the biggest stories on their plate in 2024. Special Roundtable, Friday, December 22nd. Join us then. Meanwhile, have a great week, and we'll see you on Friday, our next Roundtable, and the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.